Today, I'm going to talk about the issue of transitions from full service partnership. Um, transitions from FSP, as I'll show you, um, entail a variety of different kinds of um, activities. There are different kinds of transitions, different ways for us as clinicians to be involved in transitions. And I'm going to uh, give you a sense of what I think are uh, a few best practices around transitions from FSP transitions of all sorts. Experience I, that I sort of bring to this issue of, of uh, transition from FSP comes from my work at the VA. Um, and I've been in the MICM program there, which is an FSP-like program at the VA since 2004. Um, we have a team model, interdisciplinary team. We see people very frequently, uh, very complex veterans with severe mental illness. NICAM um, is a nationwide program at the VA in place in uh, all large VAs. And uh, so there's some centralized sort of policies and procedures that we draw on. But we always struggle a bit with uh, transitions, discharge, disenrollment, whatever we call them. We, we struggle a bit, particularly struggled with doing it intentionally, sort of setting a, a plan, uh, a, 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 a regular, consistent approach that we would use around transitions. And uh, we tried to get better at it. And we did a little bit of a quality improvement project around uh, transitions uh, in our, our MICM program. And uh, that's where some of the content here comes from. Um, so first, I'll just walk through some definitions, clarifications, talk a bit about what I mean by transitions. I'll show you a little bit of what's available in the literature on uh, FSP or sort of community treatment, um, its sister program. Um, and then I'm gonna focus in and talk about transition decision-making both as a team and as an individual provider, um, what it is that makes this challenging, these transitions, uh, how to identify readiness in clients um, and how to think through as a team, uh, some decision aids that might help to make this feel a little more doable. And at the very end, I'll talk about our process that we call a mock discharge. Um, and this is a process in which your client who is still in FSP will practice transitioning out of FSP, a little bit of uh, trying it out, practicing some of the issues, uh, problem solving around some of the, the challenges um, before actually transitioning, you see how it goes. Um, so I'll share that process with you at the end. Okay, uh, yeah, you know, I kind of jump back and forth between different, using different labels for this, both in this training and just in talking about this generally. Um, transition, very generic way of talking about this. Um, disenrollment is terminology that FSP administration uh, relies on. We called it discharge at the VA. Um, essentially, anytime someone leaves an FSP program, not a lateral transfer to another FSP program, but they are leaving the FSP program, for any reason, um, this this is what we're thinking about, a, a, an instance of a client leaving the program. Now, what I call a recovery-oriented transition is that thing that's sometimes called graduation. Um, the idea that someone has um, met all their treatment goals, um, they are ready to transition to a lower level of care or a less intensive service. Um, they've kind of met all the benchmarks we had for them. They are ready to do this. Part uh, You could think of it as part of their recovery um, that they are successfully discharging from FSP, all that same kind of transition. There are lots of other kinds of 
transitions um, within or outside of uh, uh, FSP. That could be clients who simply disappear or disengage, won't talk to you anymore. You end up having to disenroll them because they're just sort of gone. Um, there are transitions within FSP where clients might be seen less frequently, you sort of, um, you know, they're sort of tapering down. And then, as I mentioned, there are lateral transfers too. I'm going to say a little bit less about these things here, but part of the goal of intentionally thinking about transitions is you want to have as few as possible of these disengagements or you know disappearances. You want to actually um, be on top of thinking with the client about transitions um, so that hopefully you can be involved. Um, okay, so this is actually how DMH defines different reasons for different uh, disenrollment. I think this is still the most updated, oh, there might have been small changes to this, but basically these different categories we've been discussing. Clients met all their goals, they're doing great. Um, there's also this category of the client doesn't need intensive services anymore, which to me is a little, I don't know quite what that means. Maybe the, the team feels the client isn't benefiting. This happens a lot. You have a, a client in your team and you're like, I don't know, he's just not really wanting the things that I want <laughs> for him, for instance, or he's not really working on things that we're able to help him with. Um, and maybe he doesn't need this level of services anymore. So this could mean a lot of different things, right? A lot of different complicated things going on in the client's treatment that sometimes maybe make us feel like they don't really need or benefit from intensive services. Um, these other categories decided to leave the program. <laughs> Again, that can mean all kinds of different things. Client cannot be located. Client has moved to a higher level of care, you know, for instance, maybe they're in a nursing home at this point and there's nothing the FSP is doing that isn't redundant. I put this up here just because I, I, um, we all try to find some ways to categorize transitions out of FSP, but the truth is there's just all sorts of different things going on at once, usually when someone transitions from FSP. The simplest, maybe there is a discrete definition of a recovery-oriented transition. Someone's graduating, someone's doing really, really well, and they're going to transition out of FSP. Um, but the truth of the matter is often a little more complicated. Um, okay, this is some data from LA County FSP. Um, the, the, the clients enrolled from 2012 to 2016 um, in that period of time, how many left FSP? Um, so uh, if, if you were enrolled in 2012, by 2016, 41% were still enrolled in FSP. Of those who left, about a fifth uh, successfully met goals, and that was the reason they disenrolled. Um, there are some other common reasons that uh, uh, clients might have left the program without meeting their goals. Uh, decided to discontinue, the client moved, client couldn't be located, uh, uh, moved to a higher level of care, small percentage here. Um, we all sort of want to say the client has successfully met their goals and they left the program. Um, and that looks to be about 20% of this sample. Um, but a lot of clients actually stay, right? They've stayed for this whole four-year time period uh, and they've not left the program. And I, I, I do think that is an issue I'll keep coming back to. Um, a lot of clients do not need to leave FSP. I'll get in big trouble if people hear me saying this, but we don't, we, we don't have to expect that every client or a whole lot of clients are going to meet all their goals, 
and they're all going to graduate in some formal way from FSP. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, we still might have disenrollments. Um, there still might be a lot of clients that do leave the program, but it isn't necessarily this clean, everyone's met their goal and they're graduating. And for some clients, FSP is a very good place to settle. Um, they'll stay there for a while. Um, I think that's the reality. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's good for us to be active around disenrollments because they happen, they happen um, sometimes to us. And it's good for us to be thinking about them and understanding when they are um, uh, going to be uh, something we can have an impact on. If the client moves out of the state, so not much we do about that. Um, client moves to a nursing home, goes back to jail, client passes away. These are things that we, you know, we don't play a role. But um, where we have clients who might decide to leave or clients who leave without goals being met, you know, they disengage from the program, um, or where we have clients who actually do meet their goals, they do great with FSP and they want to move on, they're ready to move on. These are instances where we can play a very important, very active role as clinicians. Um, so there are all kinds of really good reasons to do this actively as well. Um, the transition from FSP helps us to understand that the FSP intervention has a particular impact for particular clients. We'll be serving the right kinds of clients, we'll be working at the level that we want to with those particular clients who are enrolled. Um, and of course, we want to be able to offer that intervention to new clients who need it. So if we're not transitioning people, we'll have no capacity, of course, to enroll new clients. And enrolling new clients always helps us reorient and understand here's what FSP is all about, here's what we're good at, here's what we uh, really can do for people. Um, enrolling is not only good for clients who get the benefit of the intervention, but it's good for us to understand what the full impact is of FSP. Um, and it is the case that over time for clients who, you know, maybe have been in FSP for a while, we're often doing a little bit less for them. The changes we're making are less dramatic. The truth is FSP, sort of community treatment as well, it is intended for a group with very high needs. Uh, it works best in that group. When we move that model to a group with lower levels of need, the impact and the value is, is lower. It, it just is. So we want to be able to bring in new clients with very high levels of need and make a big impact for them um, and then allow them to move to uh, a lower level of care. Um, you know, I think there's an issue around transition that is very important. It's this last one here, aligning your clinical work with a a, a personal mission for clinicians who come to FSP, love FSP, do FSP with passion. Um, they want to be working with clients with high levels of need. And so when we transition well, we allow those providers to um, uh, really feel engaged with their work. Um, um, I'll show you a little of what has been studied and written about transitions from a sort of community treatment you know, really all of the literature here is focused on assertive community treatment, which is that evidence-based model that has a lot in common with FSP, very much like FSP. And uh, that's typically where um, transitions have been studied. So I'll show you a little of what that evidence looks like. Um, what happened in assertive community treatment, which was developed in the 70s, um, there was a very early study 
1980, and they actually did a nice uh, controlled study of transitions out of assertive community treatment. Um, they randomized clients too. So not only did they have two arms they were comparing, but they uh, uh, populated those arms in the way that you would like to really address this particular question of, can people transition out of a sort of community treatment? Once we identify people with high levels of need and we serve them, are people, people able to maintain their gains after they leave the program? Um, 130 clients, not a tiny sample, pretty good study. And uh, everyone only got 14 months of act, but still more than a year, they got full um, uh, uh, 14 months of act. And they followed them for another um, 14 months. And this study found that um, after leaving ACT, clients weren't doing as well. So um, uh, people were readmitted to the hospital after leaving uh, their ACT program after 14 months. And the conclusion drawn from this was that sort of community treatment is, should be time unlimited. Anyone who has um, identified themselves as needing this high level of care ought to be uh, in it for life. This, of course, in the 80s was a time when we uh, talked about uh, severe and persistent mental illness. We thought of psychotic disorders as not really improving and, in fact, perhaps deteriorating over the course of someone's life. And so the thought was, once you're in ACT, you really, you're just always going to be there. And in fact, the early fidelity scales for assertive community treatment described it in that way as time unlimited. Um, it is for life. Um, since then, of course, over the decades, there's been some new thinking about this. Um, some notion that some clients in assertive community treatment or in FSP, they can do just fine after they uh, leave the program. And um, this is just a, a small number of studies. There's not a ton of research on this issue, um, but these are all observational. So these are just teams that have they didn't randomize, they didn't do a controlled trial, they didn't specify the amount of ACT that all of these clients would receive. They just watched teams that were graduating uh, clients. And really all of these studies show that for a lot of clients, they do just fine after they graduate. And I mean, it, part of what this says is that clients can do well after ACT. It also means ACT teams can be pretty good at deciding who should graduate. So this means both things, both that clients, um, uh, you know, uh, two thirds in this first study, two thirds of clients had positive outcomes after they left the program. That is probably the, the finding with the most uh, ambiguity about it in the sense that, you know, two thirds, you'd like to not see a third of your client have negative outcomes after graduating. Um, but still, two thirds of people did pretty well. So the team did a pretty good job of uh, identifying people who would do just fine and even better after leaving. Um, the second study with 20, 29 months of follow-up, only 4% needed to come back to the act. More than half of them maintained a high level of functioning. So all their gains they were able to maintain after they left the program. Um, uh, uh, half of clients were stable after leaving, uh, no significant increase in hospitalization. Um, 
this uh, finding of 6% return to intensive services, it really does seem there's a small percent in a lot of these observational studies that have to come back to act after they um, have been identified as ready to transition. Um, couple newer studies at the very bottom here. Um, what I'll point out to you about this last study, in many of these studies, again, they're just observing the teams. They observe what the teams do. The teams uh, disenroll a pretty small percent of their clients. So in this last study here, 6% of their caseload over three years was transitioned out. So these are teams that are just in their usual course of things. They're not really identifying that many clients who seem to them to be ready to transition. Um, but it does look like many of those clients can do well after they leave the program. So clients can do well. Big problem here is we don't really have a good sense of which clients do well. Um, the teams seem to be doing a reasonable job identifying those they think are ready without any external push to do so, but we don't have really any data that says if the client exhibits these four factors, we can feel reasonably sure they're gonna be stable uh, years out from ACT. We just don't have studies like that. Um, and the studies that have been done that have tried to find some markers of readiness to illustrate which clients really will do well. Um, and, and to do a study like this, you actually need to look retrospectively. You, you need to see that someone has done well, and then you need to go back and see, well, what were the baseline factors that were present for this group that did well? Um, not, not, it's hard to identify uh, consistently some factors that would predict doing well after discharge. But one thing um, that some, a couple of studies have, have seen is that when someone benefits quickly from the ACT intervention, um, these are the, the, first, uh, the first bullet here, discharge had fewer visits, more family support, higher quality of life in the first six months of ACT. Um, that's a summary from the six studies referenced above. Um, so those folks who had a lower need for services in the first six months, had more family support, um, those are the ones that did uh, uh, tended to, to be able to leave the program and do well. Um, and then the small study in that last uh, bullet there, again, those clients who showed some improvement in the first six months did well after discharge. Um, you know, I think that's a reasonable guidepost. You're in much more nebulous territory when you've had someone who's been with you for many years. They're a lot better than when they came to you but it's still uh, not, nothing very dramatic occurred for that person. That's a little hard to judge, but if you have someone who comes into the program, makes a lot of gains fairly quickly in the first six months. Um, that doesn't mean they're ready to go immediately, but you might sort of feel like, oh, this would be someone actually who's gonna manage this transition perhaps better than others. Um, that's about the most we can say from the literature. <laughs> My last slide on the literature because there's not, a good deal available for us. Um, and I think that's just very important to acknowledge. Um, transitioning is difficult and there's not really much guidance in the literature, not really evidence-based guidance about exactly knowing who's going to do well, but we need to, tr to do it anyway. So um, what I'll share with you are some decision aids that have been developed that teams use, that providers can use individually that uh, help to think through this issue of readiness. Might this person be ready for discharge? Um, these are not decision aids that have been uh, 
verified as predicting who will do well, but they are a way of thinking about what might be reasonable to do in this uh, uh, space of um, uh, transition readiness. Okay. Um, you may have gleaned this from the way I've been discussing this issue so far, but really I do think we need to recognize that transitions out of FSP require a good deal of clinical sophistication. Um, we don't have good evidence about this. Um, we have to rely on our judgment, our experience. Um, we have to guess sometimes. We need to deliberate, get some other advice, really complex task. Um, and one reason is that transitions out of FSP is a bit uh, against the grain of what we do in FSP. Um, we work with clients because no other program has been able to hold on to them. Um, they come to FSP um, because they need us. Uh, no, no, no one else has been able to serve them adequately, what FSP is all about. FSP is also all about encouraging client involvement, um, getting clients perhaps more engaged than they've ever been in management of their well-being, uh, identifying uh, recovery-oriented plans for them. Um, we want their involvement in treatment in FSP. We're actively seeking that, encouraging that at every turn. Um, it's also very difficult to judge. The client's doing really well right now, but they kind of seem like they're doing really well because they have us. If we go away, are they still doing well? They often seem to be doing well because of us in FSP. So how do we peel that away? Is that safe to do? Um, the other thing is that when we have a treatment that works, um, medications is one example, we're saying to the client, you feel really good on your medications right now. That means you should continue them. Um, it doesn't mean now you go off them. And so the notion of like, you're doing really well in, in FSP, so let's take it away, um, doesn't necessarily make logical sense at first blush. Um, and this is part of the, uh, of, the, of the challenge. And so it's very natural for team members, for everyone here on this call, but everyone else that we work with in FSP um, to uh, kind of be a little hmm, uncertain about this idea of transition. Um, I'm trying to have this person engage with me, and now I want to work on having them leave me. Hmm, I don't get it. How can I support both of those things at once? Um, how can I frame discharge as a positive transition for this client and also for me? Um, rather than as a punishment for progress, my client has done so well and I want them to feel proud of their accomplishments. Um, I don't wanna make them leave. This is gonna just feel like I'm uh, punishing them for, for doing well. Uh, that doesn't sit right with me. Um, again, this question of how stable would this person be without me? Um, and then, boy, this question in orange, <laughs> do I discharge a client who's not making progress, the one who is making progress? Again, this notion is like, this enrollment feels a little bit like a punishment for doing well. And actually, I've got three other people on my caseload who are really challenging for me to work with, and they don't seem like they're benefiting so much. Maybe I should discharge those clients instead. They're not making progress as much as I think they could, or I would like them to, aren't those the ones who should be 
disenrolled. Um, not the person who I'm noticing is really benefiting from our clients. So again, a natural question that a lot of FSP providers could have about discharge. Um, obviously, this last question, my client has been through so much abandonment and loss. Um, how can I uh, navigate this without reenacting all of that for client? Um, I put these up, I spend some time on it because especially for supervisors and we're working with a team, this is sensitive uh, stuff. And it's, it actually is gonna take a good amount of uh, leadership and reflection to have everyone feel comfortable with this kind of process. Um, and I think as well, a lot of frontline providers, these are quotes from frontline providers doing this work. A lot of providers just feel like, I don't really very often find clients who I know can transition and they're gonna do really well. Um, I wouldn't have a problem transitioning them. I've just never really seen it. Um, most of our guys are really not ready for transition. Uh, so uh, when you're working in a context where like most of the time this just doesn't seem very relevant, it's very easy for this to just fall off the radar, not something to think about, not something to talk about. And um, even if it's a theoretical possibility, just not practicing it regularly. So this is one of the reasons it's actually really important to practice it regularly. It's really important to think about it regularly, to have teams sort of remind themselves that transitions happen, they're available, um, and they're gonna be right for certain people. And we wanna be uh, mindful of that. We might even wanna um, uh, mention it sooner than it seems to be likely, um, just so that we keep it on everyone's radar as a, as a possibility. Um, these are quotes about how challenging it is because it's just very hard to know who's going to be ready. Can't predict the future. We don't quite know what's going to happen after people leave. What if I discharge him and he lashes out at someone? Is a run with the law? Um, up until then, I thought, what are we really doing for this guy? Um, I think we should maybe discharge him. And then after we did that, this um, uh, actually not after we did that while he was still with us, this thing happened. So this happens a lot with clients, right? Like they look like they're doing fine and then all of a sudden something happens. So you get a feel that nothing is gonna be very predictable here. So these all become important barriers to uh, transition for providers. Um, really interested in, whew. If there are any issues that come up for your team members or on your teams, uh, other kinds of barriers to transition that you all have to talk through together. Um, any others that you would add to that list that I enumerated there. Next, I'm gonna go through um, markers of readiness, but what about the, the barriers to transition? Anything that I've missed? Financial barriers, thank you. Um, and actually there are unique ones. Yeah, 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 okay, good. Um, FSP assisting with rent. Yeah, so this is a big one. Um, uh, what if the FSP is actually providing financial support for people, um, either rent, something like that? So that, so that, so it's actually, um, boy, a really challenging hurdle. Um, you know, I think, of course, we all know FSP is not really a housing program. FSP is was supposed to be, you know, uh, covering someone's rent entirely, but there are, we, our goal is to keep people housed. And there are times we end up in a circumstance like that, where there are these financial needs that are cannot be met in any other way. Um, particularly with indigent clients, this can happen. 
people aren't uh, eligible for certain kinds of housing um, programs. Occasionally, there are weird disincentives, uh, sorry, um, in incentives for FSP to cover rent, and then you get sort of stuck in this situation where you're um, paying for things that the client becomes, that the client needs, client becomes dependent upon. Um, yeah, I wish I had a solution for you there. It's an extra uh, challenging layer of this transition issue, important problem solving uh, uh, challenge. So what are the other solutions we might be able to come up with around housing or around paying for housing that could help us in the long run get this situation to be more sustainable for the person without FSP? Um, big problems. Uh, uh, big problem solving focus uh, 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 around transition. Yeah, that's challenges with SSI. Yeah, clients becoming dependent on the team. Um, yeah, this is a really interesting issue. Um, a sense that the client is relying on the team, for instance, to do things Oh, it might be transportation or it might be assistance with paperwork, Th things the client really needs and yet maybe could learn to do themselves also, but it would take a long time for us to support them in learning to do that. Um, and we start to get this feel of like, the person is just happy to be able to call me, wanting to call anytime they'd like to and I'm available. And they, they really are, um, uh, uh, relying on that. Um, uh, to call it dependence turns it into something, oh, it's a little bit of a pathologizing label, but part of what we're saying is the team's really offering something the client really, really wants and is not very interested in thinking of uh, doing without. Um, and so if we can begin to uh, name that with a client, um, think about the ways that they might be able to find alternate ways to have those needs met, additional ways to have those needs met. Um, kind of working on them one at a time is uh, 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 very important. Okay, yeah, great, yeah, housing. Housing funding challenges, yeah, yeah. No, I, I really am echoing everything Folks are saying that you all have really been put in a bind in certain circumstances of um, getting into that kind of financial relationship with clients and it does make these other clinical issues more complicated to manage. Okay, I'll try to come back to some of those issues as we go forward. Um, okay, markers of readiness. Uh, this is just a... Uh, uh, one way to think about things, um, stabilization of uh, symptoms, uh, involvement in daily activities, something meaningful, productive for the client. Um, in a housing situation that is the least restrictive option, um, here we also could think about in a housing situation where that client can pay for that housing without us, um, that that housing situation is stable in that sense um, would be third. And then some awareness, some ability to attend to mental and physical health needs and to seek help for those when, when needed. This is kind of what I think of as a rough list of markers of readiness. And there are a few scales that some people use. 
Um, the Moors is one of them. I know some of this, some of you use the Moors scale. I don't have that listed here. Um, I haven't personally used that scale myself, but sometimes to assess readiness, uh, the community living adaptation scale is used. It just has 14 items um, really that circle around these same sets of things, that the housing is stable, that there's social support in place, some degree of community integration and uh, daily activities. Um, the person is able to manage their finances, um, that they can recognize prodromal events or symptoms that come up for them early that could lead to uh, a, a decompensation, deterioration and symptoms, that the person can be attentive to those, that they're able to use uh, other treatment resources or manage their medication, okay, and they're not um, using hospitals or uh, jail or justice involvement. Um, that's the community living adaptation scale. And then there are two scales validated, particularly to measure this issue of transition readiness from assertive community treatment. One of them is a, called the TRS, the Transition Readiness Scale, measures these seven domains, um, treatment engagement, housing, medication use, uh, hospitalization, ER emergency service use, high-risk behaviors, of course, substance use and forensic involvement. Um, uh, you know, this is a tool that a team could use on a regular basis. They do this in New York State. Every year, you rate your client on these seven domains, one to five. It doesn't determine who's disenrolled, but it gives you a measured way to compare across clients to understand whether these domains are present. Um, and they may indicate readiness for transition. There's another scale with a very similar name, the ACT Transition Readiness Scale called the ATR. Um, it has these 10 domains, a lot of overlap in all of these scales, some structure in daily life, stable symptoms, housing is stable, some insight, um, benefits, finances are in place, they're able to engage in treatment, taking their medication, keeping appointments, um, and not using emergency services. Um, the ATR, I've uh, shown you a copy of it here, and this is available uh, in this journal article. The full scale is there, if you all might be interested in uh, looking at that. You can see here some of the items. Um, structure in his or her daily life, symptoms of unstable, some insight. Um, not incarcerated, this is scored negatively, uh, engaged in treatment, independent, taking medication. So, um, you know, sort of thinking about these four different things, a little bit of structure, someone engaged in treatment, clinically stable, and has some insight. Um, if you get someone right in the middle of all four of those, uh, that, that will, on all of these scales would suggest a high level of readiness. Um, if you have folks who don't fit exactly in the middle, that's where we begin to, to notice, well, you know, actually, if I could work a little bit more on insight with this person, I could get this person a little more able to identify what happens first, what to do about those first symptoms, um, then I might be able to work more actively on transition. Um, scales like this can be useful, I think, to give a team an exercise, a way to work on and think about transition. Again, they don't determine who is ready to go, but they give you a, a thing to do 
together and a way to compare across clients and to uh, think about uh, where to focus a team's energy around uh, transition. That's really what these skills are best for. Okay, and I am really gonna move into the final phase of talking about a mock discharge and how this could look for you. So uh, let me just pause and see if there are questions, comments about these kinds of tools. One thing that we would do um, as a team is, yeah, periodically use some of these with some of our clients just to see, just to see how they score, what, what these different uh, aspects of readiness look like. Uh, give us a little bit of a set of prompts for a discussion. Um, I don't think there's any preference for one tool or another. Again, there's so much overlap in all of them. You could even, if you wanted to, just use these four simple domains as a way to think about this. Um, but it's nice to assign a rating to it in a way. And you can, it makes it a lot easier to compare. Okay. Um, mock discharge. Um, one of the things when we started to think about this mock discharge process, we realized we needed to mark time as a team to think about transitions. So um, one way to start is to track the clients who are leaving, see how they're doing. We all have this recollection of a client who fell apart after they left our program, but we don't necessarily have systematic data that clarifies for us, okay, X number of months, beyond the transition, X percent of our clients are having this or that particular outcome. It's quite easy to get sort of wrapped up in dramatic stories of success or failure after discharge. But if you can begin to systematically collect some data on clients who are leaving your program and what happens for them, I know that's not easy, but if you can begin to have your own bit of a database about how people are doing, um, it allows for a higher degree of competence about transition, and it can be very eye-opening. Okay, um, what we did as a team was have a transition meeting every six months. Now that may not sound very frequent, but um, it's actually fine. If you can, twice a year, set aside some time Maybe ahead of the meeting, you have everyone do a few scales, use the ATR for a few of their clients or maybe several of their clients um, to bring to the meeting. And then you've got a meeting that's just about saying, how, how, who might be ready? Who, who do you think might be ready? Who do we want to work on next? Um, see if they might be ready for transition. How many people do you have who are on the launching pad, you're just about to be ready for transition. Um, what is your timeline for this or that person? And you have the whole team there so everyone can weigh in and everyone can have a different angle and perspective on what might be needed for someone to transition. And you're able to, in this team meeting, talk about risk. You know, if the outcome is mm, they might wanna go off their meds um, or they might a year and a half out have a hospitalization, it's very good to concretize that and think as a team, well, but maybe that's okay. You know, maybe we know that a year and a half from now they might have a hospitalization, but that doesn't mean that we have to. It actually would be hubris of us, us to imagine that if we were to stay with that client, for sure they would never have that hospitalization. Could happen even when they're with us. Um, 
another point where data can be really very helpful. We may have in our head an idea that this person is doing perfectly well because they're with us and if they leave, they would do much worse. But, oh, actually, that's right. They were also hospitalized when they were with us because that's the nature of their illness. They sometimes have challenges, whether they're with us or not. Uh, kind of going through that as a team in these meetings doesn't have to be very frequent, but you can do it regularly and remind one another. And it's nice on a team, you'll have people who feel more risk tolerant, people who feel more risk averse, and kind of help everyone on the team um, think through uh, how, to, how to think about this. You can use a scale, as I said, and then you might have someone on your team who wants to really become a bit focused on this issue of transition. Um, that person might be willing to put together a little bit of a uh, uh, a follow-up for clients who left the program, maybe pull together a little bit of data and information to share with the teams, or that person might try out different readiness scales and see which one he or she likes. And that person might be willing to check in about um, with other team members about who, who's on the launching pad and who is it that their um, uh, colleagues are working with to transition. Um, the other thing that needs to happen, of course, is whatever your step-down program is, I know it's probably not as intensive as it needs to be. It's probably not as available as you'd like for it to be. But building relationships with the folks on those teams, knowing who they are, knowing they've got a new supervisor at this or that uh, outpatient uh, clinic that you might work with or triple uh, R program you might work with, that they're going to you know, be known to you, have a conversation with them so you can feel at least a little tied in with step-down options. Um, a lot of teams like to do graduation events and they like to have groups or meetings or outings with uh, clients who have graduated. So clients can always come back. Um, maybe they wanna come back and give uh, a testimonial. They wanna talk to clients who are in the program, tell their story. Um, that can be a really nice way to build a culture of uh, uh, transition, of graduation, of aspiration uh, for graduation as well. Uh, some kinds of events that can uh, focus on graduation that can be for clients. Okay, so if you're working with a client and you've identified in this team process, this is a client I think he or she might be ready. I'm gonna to begin to work with this client around transition. Um, the way we did this was over months, really three, four months as a process of intentionally thinking, is this client ready to transition? And uh, it's focused on what the client is ready to work with you around focused on goals you might bring to this process, things you know need to be addressed before the client is ready to transition. Um, you'd be working actively with the client over these months to figure out what are the resources and supports that are needed for the transition. Now, as many people mentioned, if you're working with a client whose rent is partially being paid by the FSP program, you know, that might be the first thing that you're going to go at is having this conversation with a client that clinically, they may not need us any longer. If we can figure out the housing situation, uh, that rent situation, you're going to be in a much better position um, to transition from our program. That's going to be the first problem to think through and try to solve in collaboration with the clients. Um, so, other kinds of issues, resources, supports that might be important. Um, reconnecting with family, strengthening ties with family, um, identifying other supports, identifying who in the community, um, for instance, a client who might uh, have a, a, a very uh, meaningful set of relationships within their church, but perhaps they haven't identified anyone there to whom they can disclose 
their illness, their symptoms, their uh, signs of risk. And maybe you want to help that client think through who is it at your church that you're going to be seeing regularly that you could disclose to, maybe reach out to for support. Can you get that support in place for this client um, during this period of uh, getting ready for transition? Um, obviously, um, finding a, any other social support uh, entities within that client's life. Maybe they live in a boarding care and there's staff there at that boarding care who could be uh, engaged in a discussion around what would it be like for this person if they were no longer uh, with the FSP team? What are the kinds of challenges you think might arise? What would you uh, ma manager this boarding care? What would you do about that? What would you need to feel prepared for that sort of eventuality? Um, important thing to do with a client is also to decide how you want to stay in touch after the transition. So um, is that gonna be something that every month they give you a phone call and they just let you know how they're doing? Are they gonna come on your outing and they're gonna do a testimonial for the other clients in your program um, to share what their story was in FSP? Um, are they going to uh, stop by with some regularity? Kind of set up how it is that you're going to stay in touch. Uh, this is really critical. A lot of us get a little nervous about this. Like, you know, it's important to be clear about our boundaries, of course, and it is. And the boundary, of course, is they are disenrolled from the program. But we're not disappearing. They're not disappearing. There's got to be some way we could think of a way to have them able to at least stay in touch with us. Um, and I think that can be really helpful to talk about before and maybe most helpful for us, <laughs> maybe it's most helpful for us uh, that we can feel like we know we're gonna see this person again. Um, and they know that too, we're not disappearing. One thing I think is really, really critical and I know it's very, very hard to do, but if you can develop this, it can make all the difference. And that is meeting the new providers while the person is still in FSP, connect, have a visit with that person, allow the client to meet their new providers. Um, really critical. You can meet with them and then you can reflect with the client after that meeting. How do you think that's going to go? Did you like this person? Do they seem like they're going to be someone who will listen to you? So on and so forth. If you can do that before they transition, make all the difference. Even better, sometimes you're in a situation where you can have one team member go with the client Maybe the psychiatrist is also working in OCS. And so they transition out of FSP, but then they can be seen by this same psychiatrist in their new clinic program. That, very easy, wonderful transition plan. Maybe it's even temporary. Maybe you can set up something where temporarily there is a team member that goes with the client to the new program, can continue to see them for some period of overlap. Um, that too can make an enormous difference. Oh, I won a, a, a couple of really wonderful suggestions in the chat. So, and, and actually it'd be great to get other thoughts about community resources, social support resources that can be very helpful for clients if they are um, in the midst of a transition. Um, share the self-help and recovery exchange. Um, wonderful opportunity for people to develop a community of support, project return, um, uh, if the faith-based communities, uh, families, uh, Daniel's Place, uh, drop-in centers like that, that uh, can be available for people 
before, during, and after this transition. Blending teams is really gold standard way to do this. Um, keep some team members with them as they transition. It just makes transitions so much easier when you know who's on the other side, client knows who's on the other side, and that can be communication after the transition. Uh, very best way to do this. Okay, great. Other suggestions for community supports? If you want to throw those in the chat, that will be terrific. Um, so what I'll do next is really simply summarize and structure the process that I just described, um, which is what we call this mock discharge process. You have this twice a year team meeting, identify some clients who might be ready. Maybe everyone on the team commits to like one client they're gonna work at this with. Um, and they can then bring that back to the team as they go, sort of report back about how it's going to the team. Maybe that'll take three or six months to go through different steps in this uh, process. We call that a mock discharge because it might be that at the end of it, you don't think the client's ready. Um, and that's fine, that's fine. Even practicing this uh, can be beneficial for clients. And so we always left open the possibility that this is just pretend, <laughs> we're not gonna make this person disenroll. Um, that's why we call it a mock discharge. So um, these are in more granular detail what to do at each stage. There's three phases and in the first phase you're preparing. And I do think it's very important to be clear with ourselves. Why do I feel this client is ready? What might transition help my client do? I need to have a good positive sense of why I'm doing this. Um, if I don't, I'm not going to be very good at doing it. So I need to do the work of thinking, why will transition help my client? Um, uh, begin to identify what are the supports begin putting them in place, clinical supports, social supports, natural supports, um, see where the areas of gap can be filled. Um, understand how this is gonna feel for us. Maybe we're taking on a big risk in doing this. We're very nervous about that. Thinking about our feelings is important. Um, anticipating what the client might feel before we've even mentioned this to the client. What might this feel like for the client? Anticipating that understanding what it might be like to hear that from the client. I think that is very important. Set a tentative date, really important. If you're only meeting twice a year about this, say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna have a discharge date three months into the future. Set a timeline for yourself. So you keep yourself focused on that particular timeline, makes things much more concrete. Okay. All that happens before, for me, before I even have a serious conversation with the client about doing it. I've prepared my feelings, my thoughts about what problem solving needs to be done. Um, and then I'm gonna talk to the client about it. And I'm gonna understand which uh, labels the client likes. Some clients really like to think about graduation. They like this to become an accomplishment. Um, that works great. Other times, client doesn't really feel like celebrating this whole thing, and that's fine too. We can think about it in some other way, um, but very important to be active about discussing it with the client once it's been brought up. Um, 
once it's been brought up, that client is going to have feelings about it, might be starting to feel very nervous about it. And if we don't bring it up again, um, clients can get even more nervous about it. So staying engaged about the topic with the client is very important. Try not to avoid the topic is very important. And thinking through how they do feel about it with them is very uh, uh, helpful in this phase. Um, sharing the set of challenges that you derived yourself with the client, thinking through what the challenges might be. Maybe it's issues related to how do you recognize that you know, you're getting sick again? What are the first things you notice? What do you do about that? Um, who might be helpful? Who do you need to make this easier for you? Actively problem solving these issues with your client. And as I said, trying out the new clinical situation together as much as you can. Uh, very, very helpful. And then in the last phase, you are thinking about how you're gonna stay in touch, clarifying exactly what preferences are on both sides. When do you call? Hey, don't call in a crisis, right? Because I'm not able to respond to that anymore. Who do you call if you do have a crisis? Okay, so that person's for the crisis, but I can be available for these other kinds of things. I really want to hear about your daughter's wedding. I want to hear some update about how things are going with your classwork. Um, clarifying the circumstances where it'd be great to hear from the person and how exactly that happens. Think about the phone numbers you want to provide if it's a phone number or you, maybe you want to uh, you know have have them know what the address is of the clinic so they can mail a card whatever it is kind of walking through this very concretely is important um, again uh, you could always make a decision at this point that uh, disenrollment discharge is not right for this client at this time but you can decide that it is and you can um, allow for the reflection on that uh, uh, transition. What, what does it mean? What is it all about? What is uh, the takeaway the client will have from it? And then I'll have from it in this transition. Um, you get to review all of that in the last uh, phase. And then, uh, of course, client leaves, expect some follow-up comes after transition. Now, some of you may be aware that in the new FSP scope of work, there's an expectation of a 90-day overlap of a kind of 90 days where that client has transitioned and still sort of supposed to be some ability for the new treatment provider to reach back uh, to the FSP team to learn something or see if mm, this or that could be managed differently for the client. Some um, uh, about 90 days where we're both of these teams, the FSP and the receiving team are going to be sort of trying this out to see how it goes. You know, that is implicit in the scope of work. I think it's not necessarily an expectation that is, you know, consistently communicated. And it might be that, you know, you can't always have that in the circumstance that you're working in, but uh, it does make a lot of sense. If you think of that 90 days as a little bit of a period where you're um, still mm, available, still uh, trying to understand what is needed for the client in this uh, period of transition. Uh, and so this is just a summary of the different phases of things you might do in the different phases, clarifying the reasons, identifying needed supports, setting a timeline, talking with the client, staying engaged with the client about the issues, trying out the new clinical home, and then making a decision planning to stay in touch and following up with the client. All right, this is the gold standard, sort of perfect way to do things and everything can be really well 
uh, 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 sorted through collaboratively with the client. This is what we always want. Real world is not always this way. Um, great comment in the chat. Some of our clients continue to meet criteria for FSP, but don't show much change over time. Repeatedly getting evicted or incarcerated, saying they only want to engage if we get them housed. At what point when no progress is being made should transitioning or disenrollment from FSP be considered, even though they're still not doing great? Okay, so this is uh, this is what happened. I um, when I was looking at our data on our disenrollments, I had a category of graduation, I had this category of disengagement, where they just maybe mm, just just leave the team. No one's very happy about it. Um, but they sort of go. And that's the kind of transition that this uh, comment in the chat is getting at. You know, we could decide as a team, this client really not doing great, um, still having challenges day to day, um, not necessarily interested in working consistently with us on treatment goals. They want help when they need housing from us. You know, when they have a need, they reach out, but we're not really able to make consistent progress. If I disenroll this person, I can enroll a new person for whom I might have a better chance of really making sustained uh, progress. So mm, maybe this is not the right time for this person. I should disenroll them and uh, uh, enroll a new client instead because they haven't engaged. Their engagement is conditional. Um, their engagement doesn't seem to be making much of a difference in the course of um, uh, 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 of their quality of life. Can we disenroll? These are all great questions to discuss as a team. <laughs> I, I don't have an answer for you except to say, you can disenroll, you can decide. It is the right thing to do to disenroll. In these situations where it just is not clear that the client's making progress in FSP, you know, the only caveat is if someone is every week in the ER or in the hospital, um, you know, obviously having uh, active suicidality or, or other dangerous thoughts, um, client is not, not housed, uh, not able to stay housed. You might, if you disenroll, you might just be kicking the can on the road. Uh, you know, clients are sick and not stable. You know, that's what FSP is for. So if that's the situation and you know what you're doing is just creating a problem for, you know, the homeless outreach team that's gonna to struggle to get this client back into services, probably not a good idea to disenroll. But there are other kinds of clients who have a modicum of stability in their life. Um, if we disenroll them, we're not relegating them to a terrible cycle of jail and ER and hospital and homelessness. Um, uh, a modicum of stability, but not making a lot of progress. You might decide that person is okay to disenroll. Um, so I think that's just the question to decide as a team. And with a recognition that there's actually no one else who's going to pick up this client, right? Like if, if that client is evicted and homeless again and back in the ER and back in the hospital um, and then back in jail, you know, that there's no one else who's going to fix all those problems except FSP. So probably that's a case where we just have to tolerate what feels like a lack of progress um, because we're saving that person from complete abandonment. 
Um, but if it's not quite like that, you can have a discussion as a team to say, you know, we've really done all we can. And I think he's going to make it okay, not really benefiting a good deal from what we're doing. Um, and might be time to disenroll and see what happens. Um, so that's what I would say about that somewhat. Uh, on, on, uh, th those are very complex situations, uh, complex in the sense of it's hard to imagine a great outcome from them. Those I think are the clients who don't do as well after discharge, the ones who are um, not as engaged as we hope they would be when they were in the program. All right, I've just got really one more slide. We can um, again return. I think these sort of real world examples are so helpful to think about how this comes up on your team. A couple of trainings that we do that you know might be helpful in thinking through some of these issues of uh, discharge and discharge readiness. Um, we do have this nice training on problem solving therapy, uh, which is a modality that you could apply to the transition period of identifying a particular problem that you really want the client to focus on before transition. Problem solving therapy can be used in that phase um, to uh, develop a, a plan, engage the client in active problem solving. Um, so this is where you can find that. We also have a critical time intervention training. Critical time intervention is a structured model of service team-based service that is really intended um, for people moving out of homelessness into housing. And it's intended to be short-term, three months, uh, six months, very, very short-term intensive um, uh, kind of uh, uh, particular focus. The structure of critical time intervention can be really nice around any transition though. If you abstract out what critical time intervention is all about, it is about mm, problem specification, understanding what very specific goals are that the client can work on in this very particular three month period, um, writing down those goals in very simple ways, thinking about what needs to be done about each one of those goals. The critical time intervention approach is, is it's just very intentional and focused on uh, specific kinds of uh, needs. So, that training as well is a nice one to think through these issues of readying for transition. Um, and then we have this uh, skills for listening and engaging, which is uh, 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 foundational counseling training um, course. It kind of um, uh, addresses these challenging conversations such as around uh, transitions and disenrollment from FSP. So those are uh, three things that may be relevant for some of the skill set we've talked about today. And that is the end of my slide. So we'll just take a moment to see if there are other questions or comments that, that folks would like to bring up uh, around this broad issue of transition. Yeah, I like this framing a lot. Uh, very helpful to think about how to assist clients in being successful after FSP. I like that framing a lot. And maybe I, I didn't bring that to the fore in the way that I should. Um, the tense of this, that actually what you're thinking about is not like right now today, how do we solve this problem? But let's think about what success means after FSP for you. Um, what would it be like for you to succeed after this point in time? So visioning is a really nice way to handle this transition. Right, right. Thank you for the comment. Yeah, being proactive about this is part 
of the trick. We all, uh, it's very easy to avoid the topic, but when we actively think it through with clients, um, we, 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 we can get better at it and practice this and it can start to feel easier. Yes, you can use, um, so the assessment, I, one reason I put that picture of the ATR scale in the slide, you can feel free to use that, absolutely no problem at all for you to apply that in your clinical work. You should be able to find as well the article that it came from, but that picture I have in that one slide of the ATR scale, that's the whole thing. You can just print that and use that. Um, the others are a little harder to find. Um, that's why I put that last ATR scale on the slide itself. They're all so similar. Um, thank you all so much for joining today. I'm really glad we could talk about this.